The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to uh, the Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. Uh, As we all know, there are uh, evident changes in the geopolitics across the world, which has an impact on global economy and business. Today, we are going to discuss uh, the impact of Brexit and Trump presidency on global business. Uh, There has been some time uh, since uh, the Trump uh, victory has been announced. Brexit has happened, and a lot has been written about it. Uh, today, uh, we are looking at the various articles and uh, news uh, broadcasts which have come up about these two subjects, and uh, we will share the various narratives provided in past few months about the reason and possible scenarios for future. Uh, let's start with Michael and Marina, who have provided a narrative on the commonalities of the Brexit and Trump vote. They have also analyzed the reasons. So where did it start? So let's look at a situation. Investments had been going down, living standards had deteriorated, and inequality had risen. The underlying dissatisfaction was picked up by Brexit and Trump campaigns, which they exploited it by blaming those problems on external forces, including globalization. Although you can say these problems were not the inevitable result of globalization, but they were a consequence of domestic policy choices and they were influenced by flawed economic theories. The Brexit vote and the election of Trump can be considered as a voice of the economically left behind. Uh, Or you can say it's a protest by working class voters at the impact of globalization on their jobs and living standards. The disaffection of people on below average incomes impacted the outcome of vote and the election. The voters who chose Trump or Brexit as the solution to their problems, (laughs) uh, let's look at uh, what 
kind of economic situations impacted them. In the US, median household incomes are basically the same today as they were a quarter of a century ago. And during the same period, GDP has grown by almost 80%. Now, in UK, similar divergence was noticed between the medium of income and the growth of GDP over the same long period. If you see, since the financial crisis, the stagnation of wages has been really noticeable. The median household disposable income in 2014 and 15 was back to its level of 2007 and 8. In no region of the UK outside London and southeast output is back to its pre-crisis level. At the same time, income of the richest 1% in both countries, US and UK, have continued to surge ahead. In the first three years of the US recovery after 2008, an extraordinary 91% of the gains in income went to the richest 100th of the population. That's staggering. Now, this should have given economists and policymakers pause for a thought. It is hardly surprising that an economic system uh, which distributes its rewards so badly should lose its popular legitimacy. It is a phenomena which may well be repeated in European elections over the next years in future and that the political beneficiaries will be, una will be unable to address their voters' concerns. President Trump may increase infrastructure spending, which would be good, but he has also pledged tax cuts for the rich and trade war with China, which could be disastrous. Brexit can only damage the British economy, possibly severely if the UK leaves the single market and the financial sector loses its passporting rights to tr the trade in the U EU. European Union. The similarities in Brexit and Trump election aren't exact. The main feature is that the campaigns shared a tendency to blame external forces for domestic economic problems. The rise in inequality and the loss of skilled jobs over the last four decades, which have propelled Brexit and Trump, results are not due to the unstoppable forces of globalization. They are the result of active political policy and business choices made. These choices need to be questioned along with the problematic economic theory which has influenced them. Globalization and technological change did not need to lead to the hollowing out of skilled jobs and downward pressure on medium incomes on the scale that has occurred in the US or UK. Is government's ability to shape and create markets and to negotiate their terms and conditions that determines the kind of economy that emerges from these global and technological forces. The tragedy of globalization over the last 30 years is that it has occurred at the same time as the dominance of an economic orthodoxy 
that saw the state retreat from active economic management. Maybe you can say that what was needed was a more active state role in redistributing its rewards to develop the productive economy and to ensure fairer outcomes. Orthodox economic theory has guided poor economic policy. Take investments as an example. <coughs> Let's say where there has been a major failure of both public policy and private action. Not only has the finance sector grown into an increasingly unbalanced proportion of the economy, but the so-called real economy has been increasingly financialized, justified by the focus on shareholder value, which has become a common buzzword for the last many decades. A lot of large U.S. corporations have returned cash to shareholders in record amounts. And to do what? To boost share prices. And definitely to make the executive remuneration also go up. And so that's what they were getting. Rather than reinvest in the future productive capacities. If you look at the numbers in the decade between 2003 to 2012, the largest 500 companies returned more than 2.5 trillion US dollars to shareholders in the form of share buybacks. Today, more than 2 trillion of ideal idle cash is sitting on the books of public companies in the United States, which rather should be reinvested and uh, I think the same amount is close to 2 trillion uh, pounds, uh, no sorry, euros in Europe. The private failure to invest is matched by a failure of public investment. And why? Austerity since the crash. Austerity since the financial crash had focused on the size of annual deficits rather than on the composition of public spending and the contribution it can make to long-term growth. The problem is compounded by the orthodox economic view that limits the role of public policy to correcting market failures. Firms are assumed to be ready and willing to invest with the role of policy limited to removing the barriers that might be inhibiting them from doing so. Strategic investments by public agencies with public missions and purposes can shape and create new markets, generating the desire to invest by businesses which see opportunities for future profit making. Governments need to adapt a much more proactive economic strategy of supporting investment-led growth using physical powers, labor market regulation, public investment, and mission-oriented market creation to shape economic development. They should also think much more creatively about how to socialize not only the risks, but the rewards of investments they have supported. In areas like drug pricing, patent laws, and financing of innovation, the state has been 
far too willing to take the cost while allowing the private sector to reap the benefits. For more than 40 years, the dominant economic consensus has been rather that financial markets are efficient, corporations will best innovate and invest when left to themselves. Rising inequality is the price to be paid for growth and the best role for government is to get smaller. The great financial crash and the profound failure of the austerity policies which followed it did not change the orthodox economic consensus away. Unregulated financial markets are prone to misallocating resources and creating asset bubbles which finally burst. Corporations and financial asset holders seeking to maximize shareholder value tend to underinvest in long-term growth. Innovation is best canvalized through a partnership of public and private finance. Public investment banks can crowd in private capital when demand is weak. More unequal economies tend to have worse growth performance. What is needed now in an economics based not on the abstract simplicities of markets and market failures, but on the evidence of how contemporary capitalism actually works and why in key respects it now does not. The Brexit and Trump electoral results make this increasingly look like the beginning of a new political era. And if policymakers are to respond in better ways to the new popular mood, they need to engage in a fundamental rethinking of capitalism, guided by better economic theory and a more dynamic relation between relationships between the theory and the policy. We'll now take a short break and we'll join you very soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand You're listening to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. Today we are talking about geopolitics and its uh, impact on the global economy. And specifically, we are talking about Brexit and Trump vote and what is the economic impact. 
Uh, in the first session, we talked about uh, the two writers who wrote uh, last month, and we shared their thoughts. Uh, we're going to share a lot more thoughts uh, from various other writers to to give you an idea of what how the thought process is working uh, of various uh, thinkers, writers on this subject. Now, I want to talk about Anne, who has provided a nice commentary and analysis on Brexit and its consequences. So, Anne uh, Pettifor has made some uh, uh, very nice observation and articulated it very well. So, Brexit vote is but the latest manifestation of dissatisfaction with the ideal of autonomous markets beyond the reach of regulatory democracy. That's how Anne summarizes it, and plus it continues. Uh, and uh, how it goes is, Brexit represented the collective efforts of those left behind in Britain to protect themselves from the predatory nature of market fundamentalism. It is form of social self-protection from self-regulating markets in money, trade, and labor. Global wars and... Uh, uh, sorry, globalization was and remains the ambition of those many economists, financiers, politicians, and policymakers that are once aptly defined by George Soros as the market fundamentalists. When more than 17 million British voters opted to entice the European Union on the 23rd of June 2016, they exposed the fragility and even futility of the ambition to build markets beyond the reach of regulatory democracies. By doing so, British voters rejected the advice of dozens of leading economists and several powerful financial institutions. Uh, it actually included President Bob Obama. He also uh, uh, talked about it and uh, indicated that they should vote for remaining in. The outcome uh, threatens to undermine the pivotal role played by the City of London in globalizing and financializing the world economy. The background to this historic event can be traced to the economic theories and policies that led to the, the great financial crisis. Let, let's see if we can revisit what happened. The financial house of cards began to collapse in as early as 2006 uh, on what you call Debt Donation Day, 9th August 2007. Interbanking, interbank lending around the world froze, and the great financial crisis, still ongoing in both Europe and in energy uh, and in emerging markets, began in all, all earnest. Since then, both the ideology of globalization and economic reality of liberal finance have weakened. The former set of countervailing populistic, nationalistic, and protectionist movement in the U.S., Europe, and in several emerging markets. The latter is now subject to considerable contraction as financial flows are domesticated and trade flows contract. Unfettered global financial flows are intrinsic to the globalization deal, <coughs> but flows collapsed during 2007 to 2009 and nearly 10 years later remain well below pre-crisis levels. At the peak, <coughs> one world's hundred largest, the world's hundred largest banks had a market capitalization of around 4.9 trillion, let's say 5 trillion, <coughs> according to the Bank of England. 
And at that time, that was around 8.5% of the annual GDP. Uh, at its trough, this had fallen to 1.4 trillion, a destruction of financial capital of 3.5 trillion. The market capitalization of world's 20 largest banks today remains around half its value in 2007. Now, this has come, this piece of information has come from the Great Divide. This was a speech given at the, uh, the New City Agenda annual dinner in London. You know, the decline in flows to and from the city of London has led uh, a global decline in flows, according to Forbes, too. The contraction in UK international lending and borrowing is larger on an absolute basis than for any other country for which data is available. In other words, the decline in bank flows into and out of the UK has contributed more to the global decline in banking flows than any other country. That decline is now likely to be aggravated by the Brexit vote. And as the Financial Times um, uh, several months ago reported, the biggest fear for many is that financial services could face a cliff edge moment in the UK, which leaves the EU without a trade agreement. Sorry, if the UK leaves the EU without a trade agreement in place, cutting off access basically to the bankers, access to the single market overnight. Uh, Given their key roles played by Brexiteers in the newly formed conservative government led by Theresa May, all of whom have an aversion to the unfettered migration that is central to European project. And given that free movement is a condition of access to the single market, such a trade agreement seems increasingly unlikely to serve the interest of the city British bankers have given up hope of universal access to the single market. Uh, let's look at uh, what has happened in the past with the G20 countries. You know, since uh, 2008, the G20 economies have become increasingly protectionist. According to the World Trade Organization, the advanced economies have since then introduced a whopping 1,583 new trade restrictions and removed just 387. In a recent report, the WTO noted that between mid-October of 2015 and mid-May of 2016, G20 countries introduced 145 new protectionist measures, a monthly average of almost 21, the highest since the WTO began monitoring such measures in 2009. And that's information from WTO. Now, the destabilizing consequence of the crisis and the reversal of globalization agenda triggered countervailing nationalist and protectionist movement after the financial crisis in late 2000, like 2007, 8, 9, whatever period you want to consider as crisis. These should have come as no surprise. 
Firstly, the financial crisis was self-inflicted wound. Re-regulation of the global economy to favor, detach and strengthen the rentier, the title holders of money. That sector was achieved by deflationary policies. These imposed substantial costs in the real productive economy where millions expect to be employed. And both enriched and protected the rentier sector from oversight, penalties and punishment. Now, in contrast, the UK industry has suffered a faster decline than all its economic rivals in the same period. Now, let's look. In 1970, UK manufacturing accounted for 30% of GDP, which was 16.3% of total world exports, which also accounted for 16.3% of total world exports as per codes, and uh, had trade surplus of you know, approximately 5% annually. You know, furthermore, 35% of UK employment was in this sector. But what happened? By 2010, 13% of the GDP and 10% of total employment was in manufacturing. And UK was running a trade deficit in this sector of approximately 3%. Now, this data has been provided by Chang in his uh, uh, writings. Re-regulation, re-regulating the British economy in favor of finance and enriching the 1% while shrinking labor share of income resulted in rising inequality, which was alarming and lit a still smoldering-ish fuse of popular resentment, the resentment made most explicit in the Brexit vote. With the historic Brexit vote, the British people rejected this flawed brand of economics and in particular the dominant liberal finance narrative. And they did so because of the hardship they were experiencing. They were experiencing oppressed wages, diminished public services, rising housing costs and shortages and insecure employment. These are indirectly a consequence of the theories and policies of the mainstream economic, economics profession. The Remain campaign for Brexit chose to focus on the economy to the exclusion of almost all else. All the heavyweights of the economics profession, 10 Nobel Prize winning economies, the OECD, the IMF, the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, the NIESR, the Institute of Fiscal Studies, the London School of Economics, all of them were wheeled out to warn the British people of economic facts known and understood apparently only to experts. It was difficult for ordinary people to understand that. That could be the way it was communicated. The Financial Times actually amplified their voices and repeated their dire threats and warning over and over. But the experts and the economic theories they tell have been well and truly valued by the results of the referendum. Rightly so, because while there is a truth in the story, that international, in particular European cooperation and coordination of vital economic activity and stability, there is no sound basis to the widely espoused economic religion that markets in money, trade and labor must be unfettered, detached from democratic regulatory oversight and must be left to govern whole countries, regions and continents. We'll now take a short break and we'll continue after the break.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand You're listening to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. Today we are talking about the Brexit report and its economic impact. We were uh, uh, talking before we took the break about the narrative provided by Anne in an article on Brexit and its consequences. Continuing uh, from where we left uh, at the break, the British people by voting Brexit rejected uh, the, this mainstream orthodox economics uh, strain of uh, fundamentalism that they rightly judge has proved deleterious to their own economic interests. Uh, fear, its consequences energizing the far right, both in Britain but also across both Europe and US. The fear of the breakup of the UK and the political dominance of small tribe of conservative little Englanders. Um, and also mentioned that they will diminish this country's great social, economic, and political achievements. Uh, but you know, Britain's Brexit vote is but the latest manifestation of popular dissatisfaction with the economist's globalized, marketized society. And if there should be any doubt that these moments are both nationalistic and protectionist, consider Donald Trump's campaign threat to build a wall between Mexico and the U.S., to deter migrants, gangs, drug traffickers, and cartels. This was published on the Trump website. Trump's plan for financing the wall involves introduction of controls over the movement of capital. That's what he wants to use. If the Mexican government resisted, as Trump argued, the U.S. would cut off the billions of dollars that undocumented Mexican immigrants. Look at the word, undocumented Mexican immigrants working in the U.S. sent to their families annually. As Trump said, wrote somewhere, yeah, I think it, he wrote in Washington Post in 2016, uh, April, it's an easy decision for Mexico. Either make a one-time payment of dollar five to ten billion to ensure that 24 billion continues flow into their country every year. And that's what Trump reveals how you'd force Mexico to pay for the border wall. The Brexit force seems uh, to be a manifestation of the expected resistance to market fundamentalism. You know, the Brexit slogans, look at that. Take back control, take back our country, and Britannia waves the rules, represented an incoherent, an incoherent attempt to subordinate unfettered globalized markets in money, trade, and labor to the interest of 
interests of British society. Like the movement mobilized by Donald Trump in the US, the Five Star Alliances in Italy, Podemos in Spain, the Front National in France, the Corbyn phenomena in the UK, the Law and Justice Party in Poland, Brexit represented the collective effort of those left behind in Britain to protect themselves from the predatory nature of market fundamentalism. You know, has, uh, Brexit has endangered British society in yet another way. But the vote was, uh, as Anne contends, a form of social self-protection from self-regulating markets in money, trade, and labor. You know, uh, there has been a lot of uh, articles and material, and one article uh, from Bain's insight on the potential impacts of Brexit on the global economy is pretty interesting. You know, uh, what you notice there is, and they've, they've summarized it very well, the markets and the odds makers were caught off guard by the UK's vote to leave the European Union. The immediate reaction to the financial market was swift and violent owing to the surprise. There's a big surprise element there. The Brexit vote definitely will embolden other EU skeptic parties, particularly in the Eurozone. The process of Brexit is without precedent. You know, um, thousands of details will have to be worked out in the process of unwinding the ties that bind Britain and the EU. The financial market reaction will also feed into the far-flung macroeconomic consequences of Brexit. Let's take an example. A sharp rise in the value of US dollar as compared to Euro will put added pressure on the weak US manufacturing. And that too at a time when it is finding a, a new foothold. This puts additional pressure on the weak U.S. growth momentum. Yeah. And if you look at, there's no roadmap to follow or analogy to invoke as a guide or pattern for how the Brexit vote will reflect in the months and years to come. However, there could be uh, <coughs> some possible consequences. You know, the flight to safety from British EU divorce will push capital away from the region. And the capital may move to key safe haven markets. It could be US, especially US treasuries or, treasuries or Japan. And that could result in uh, lowering of market interest rates and uh, it can raise relative currency values. Now, a higher dollar <coughs> and a Japanese yen are negative to both uh, the countries for export sectors. Particularly in the case of Japan, it is unhelpful to its efforts to pull its economy up from decades of deflation. The higher US dollar also triggers additional pressure on China to float the one lower. It's already caught between divergence between the two largest export markets, EU and the US. <coughs> if you look at the US, uh, the negative impact on exports could be relatively uh, small compared with trends in domestic demand. But the pressure of deflation on tradable goods will widen 
the divergence between uh, you know reasonably strong inflation in the service sector uh, when compared with reasonably strong deflation in the goods sector. Uh, looking at Europe, in the European Central Bank, it will be compelled to raise its level of intervention yet again. They have help out. The risk premium across the region will rise. Among the large Eurozone members, Italy is in particularly vulnerable position now. Now it's made more vulnerable. You know, each blow to any of the members of Eurozone periphery also further makes Germany's outperformance in the Eurozone even more unsustainable. You know, if you look further, uh, you know, global network, network uh, perspective uh, have provided insights from various writers, the university professors and others. And let's look at uh, what are the viewpoints coming uh, from different people. So uh, if you look at how Trump's presidency will affect the global business, you know, uh, you know, months after UK voted to leave the European Union, the world got another shock. Uh, as it is, uh, Brexit was unexpected. At the ballot, ballot box uh, in uh, in US, uh, and Donald Trump defied the polls and the conventional wisdom as well elected president of the United States. Just like Brexit. Uh, Trump's election seemed to be a rebuke to globalization and convention of the post-war order. And uh, uh, what we're going to discuss in next few is the global network perspectives. Uh, uh, you know, what, when they asked uh, experts across global networks that how it's going to impact the global business landscape. Pretty interesting reading on that. You know. Uh, so, in summary, before I start looking at individual uh, contributions, uh, the most sustainable concern for the global business environment at this point of time is uncertainty regarding both policies and key personnel. Uh, this makes it even more important for President Trump to reassure global partners of the steadiness and continuity of U.S. foreign and economic policies. You know, uh, Alex uh, from uh, uh, NUS Business School, which is National University of Singapore, uh, he, he, he has uh, thrown more light into it. What he says is, um, uh, let's look at Trump, who has called for 45% custom duty on a lot of products uh, from China, 35% Mexico, 15 to 35 from other countries, other products, uh, who are uh, deemed to be currency-manipulating nations. If such protectionist tariffs were imposed, they would inflict real damage on the U.S. retail sector, especially stores like Walmart, who buy from all of them, that import, they import majority of their consumer products, I would say from China, I would say that's the numbers. Ultimately, U.S. middle and working class consumers would have to pay more if you put more duties on it. And these are everyday goods, and uh, what it would do is it will reduce the choices also. Also, in addition, the manufacturers in U.S. that are utilizing, you know, that um, uh, corridor maquiladora strategy, many people are using rationalized production both in Mexico and U.S., could be hard hit. And uh, the, the, the automotive industry, electronics, industrial machinery, medical devices, pharmaceutical, apparel, footwear, and many others would be impacted by that. And uh, look at the Trump threat of cheering up the North American free trade agreement. Uh, it will add cost to supply chains. 
and it may dis disrupt the, the existing uh, production networks and supply chains. And uh, God forbid, it may result in some plant closures, and 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 that uh, uh, would further deprive other sectors such as services, logistics, and real estate from from uh, trickle down income because uh, you get from that that they contribute to service sector too. Uh, the Peterson Institute of International Economics, uh, a non-partition think tank, estimates that Trump's trade policies could cost uh, U.S. almost 4 million jobs and send it into a recession. Hope that doesn't happen. It never happens at all. Trump has also stated uh, regarding TPP, the Trans-Pacific Free Trade Agreement, that he's going to cheer it. This will effectively create a competitive disadvantage for U.S. export services sectors, sorry, in lucrative overseas markets. And again, the industries which get impacted is agriculture, aviation, some of the high-tech, medical equipment services, and pharma, etc. Now, <coughs> for sure, Trump's election is ushered in an era of heightened uncertainty and anxiety in global businesses. It could be expectations. And uh, businesses may question to what extent value chain will be affected by these tariffs, which are protectionist in nature, and uh, is that a Western black back? Sorry, Western backlash against globalization. It's it's not yet clear how far Trump will go to carry out these campaign pledges, which is that imposing high tariffs again, goods originating from Mexico, China, and potentially the EU, Japan, and Korea, could have the devastating effects on production networks and business ecosystems. The the worst case scenario. Let's look at what could be worst case scenario. It could include a trade war between the U.S. and China, the two largest economies. You know where Chinese can impose retaliatory tariffs on U.S. services and goods, and uh, say there's no trade war. Because the protectionist tariffs can severely disrupt global value chains uh, for. Not only Chinese firms and U.S. firms, but thousands of foreign subsidiaries that have uh, embedded themselves in cross-border production networks. So if Trump policies disrupt these value chains, it's likely that many U.S. firms and U.S.-based foreign subsidiaries will may, need, will and may need to relocate their activities elsewhere, creating the exact opposite outcome. Now, global cities like Singapore, which function as trade and uh, financial centers, uh, could likely experience first uh, a slowdown from effect of Trump-induced trade fallout, and uh, it can further be followed by heightened activity as U.S. firms and other M&Es, multinational enterprises, move their operations out of U.S. possibly into Asia. But Trump doesn't want to do it. He wants to uh, move uh, things back to U.S. We'll take a short break and we'll be back uh, for our last session. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Welcome back. You're listening to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. Today we are talking about Brexit Trump vote and its economic impact. Now, uh, we have been discussing uh, before the break uh, uh, some of the articles uh, published uh, by experts in global network perspective. We move on to uh, the article published by Nitin, again from uh, National University of uh, uh, Singapore. And he mentions it, it's, it remains to be seen whether Trump policies will be as protectionist as he said while campaigning. That's a great point. There could be a change in stand there. Uh, let's say if it goes this way. Industries such as electronics that export to U.S. may be affected. Singapore is not a big exporter to U.S. in terms of rankings and a good proportion of what it does export to U.S. is in niche areas which are not in public eye, such as optics and medical instruments, organic chemicals, electrical machinery, etc. Trump could have a positive impact on the other way down in one way. The Obama administration's solution to everything was passing a lot of bills and regulations. Business in general and banks in particular were blamed for many problems. If Trump can roll back regulation and, new, and view businesses as a partner of government and a facilitator of growth and employment, it might have a very positive impact on business sentiment and growth. He may also reduce taxes, which could have a positive effect on the economy. And if he implements protectionist policies, that might counter some of the positive effects identified earlier in our discussion. The key appointments which uh, Trump is in the process of making are very important signals under what actually will be done by him. Now, uh, look at uh, uh, what um, uh, Andrew talks about, again from uh, National uh, University of Singapore. Uh, you mentioned Trump is not a Suharto, he's not a Xi Jinping. The office of U.S. President has defined powers. You know, very interesting most of which are in political sphere. But for any real and long-lasting policies to be designed and implemented, they need the support of all parties in the policy-making process. That's great observation. Congress and presidency are in Republican control, but Trump is a maverick Republican and some of his most extreme ideas do not have the support of your traditional Republicans. With a Republican majority in House of Representative and a razor-thin Republican majority in Senate, there are many opportunities for effective op opposition to Trump's more extreme policies. So what does it mean? It should mean more or less business as usual for countries, especially in the Asian region. This does not mean there will be no uncertainty or there is no change. But it means the radical policy changes that redefine the business environment, that redefine the terms of change may not come in. It will be unlikely. It also means the passage of TPP is less likely because it needs support of all involved in the policy-making process in the U.S. to pass it. Now, let's look at the global business environment. 
in terms of business environment, there'll be much stronger rhetoric coming from U.S. You know, it's true that expansion of economies in East and Southeast Asia came at a heavy expense of subset of populace uh, in the United States. It's also true that U.S. manufacturing is recovering. And it is definitely becoming more productive and leaving less reason for U.S. firms to outsource or seek manufacturing partnership outside the domestic market. East and Southeast Asian economies need a cooperative U.S. more than the U.S. now needs a cooperation of these economies. You know, just policymakers as a whole understand these positions. In terms of trade and trade negotiation, trade treaties, and even the action of individual U.S. firms, they will have an opportunity to leverage their strength in their bargaining positions than what they had in the past. And they can extract more favors for U.S. firms. And uh, let's see how these gets balanced in the benefits to U.S. and its trading partners than has been the case in the past. Uh, moving on, let's look at... Um, uh, uh, Sean Gussell from South Africa. Uh, he's at the Graduate School of Business, University of Cape Town. You know, and the eventual strip selection will impact South Africa via the global financial and trade channels rather than directly. Short-term trade negotiations are likely to be difficult than the long-term trade agreements. As for global implication, Trump's election shows that Brexit was an outlier and will embolden left and right-wing nationalists and populists in the short term. Some commentators are saying that this is an outcome of inequality rising from globalization. This, this, is, this is only partially correct. Brexit and Trump are a result of wage stagnation in industrial countries. You know? And that arose from globalization, no doubt. The implication is that although Trump will try to use trade agreements to return American large-scale manufacturing back to the U.S., this is unlikely to have much impact as, and the specialized uh, manufacturing that does return to the U.S. is largely mechanized and high-skill, low-labor intense to affect the U.S. wage gap. Trump's isolationist and populist platform will heighten tensions globally, but will also expose the political fault lines in the U.S. between a deeply divided Democratic Party as well as fractured Republican. This means that despite all the fear and hype, Trump may face a policy stagnation that comes from fractured party politics, as mentioned by other writers also, that can put it into the no-action zone. And definitely, Trump plans to boost the U.S. economy through an expanded infrastructure program, but the budgetary <coughs> reallocation to do so is problematic. Because if government spending increases, then this will lead to inflationary pressure, uh, forcing interest rate increases. <coughs> if the government borrows instead, then it will have to fund the associated cost. The greater concern would be if the government used both expansionary monetary policy coupled with deficit spending because this would then fuel global inflation. Thus, in turn, would have detrimental effects on many emerging countries which tend to have pro-cyclical capital flows and synchronous business cycles. <coughs> Now, let's look at, uh, you know, uh, what Jean-Pierre Lehman uh, from uh, Switzerland, IMD Business School, <laughs> has to say about the whole thing. There was no prediction or warning that 
Trump would be the 45th president, let alone his victory, uh, would be crushingly decisive. Even the shock of Brexit pales into comparison. As a middle-ranking power, Britain is a minor actor on the global geopolitical stage. Uh, and if you talk about the United States, the world's major power by far, dominant on the global stage, is facing a, a rising Chinese power. The victory clearly have uh, consequences both intended and unintended. <clears throat> the consequence of Trump victory is that protectionist protectionism will increase in the U.S., but through retaliatory moves everywhere, the threat of an outright trade war between China and the U.S., present for some time on the horizon, is now getting closer. Trump, whereas Trump is an overt protectionist, the trade policy makers in the administration of his two predecessors, Bush and Obama, were closest, close, sorry, closet protectionists. The main obstacle to pursuing an open, uh, rules-based multilateral trade agenda has risen due to inability of the erstwhile dominant actor, US, Europe, and Japan, to adjust to the emergence of new actors, especially China, but also other so-called emerging economies. Uh, the most recent manifestation of you know, this failure has been the mega-regionals. Notably, the TPP, you know, uh, both of which uh, discriminate against the new actors. You see, against China. It's not only China. It's India, Brazil, South Africa, and all these developed countries. The mega-regionals are also politicized, using trade as a weapon to achieve geopolitical ends. Uh, as Obama, Secretary for Defense, Ash Carter, uh, admitted, TPP is like having an extra aircraft carrier. Uh, the good news is that with Trump's election, it's reasonably certain that it will be buried. The bad news is that there's no solid rules-based multilateral global trade framework. As things currently stand, the global trade institution, the WTO, is cavernous, while the protestants rhetoric especially but not exclusively against China has become more threatening and strident. There is an urgent imperative for those who wish to promote a sustainable, inclusive, equitable and dynamic global rule-based multilateral agenda to rally forces. The situation is highly critical and as things currently stand, could get much worse. The specter of protectionism, global trade wars is terrifying and must be taken seriously. In the summary, let's put in the end, it's clear that both Brexit and Trump victory are unprecedented and have major impact on global economy. It has created an uncertainty, but I will add an expectation too, which is very divergent from normal. Next year, 2017, would be critical to watch for the direction global economy takes and the geopolitical equations develop. Uh, we are at the end of our program today. Thanks for listening. and. Uh, Look forward to talking to you in the next program.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.